Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. And we're back. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt, it's been forever since we've been on the mic with each other. It's been a week. A little bit. <laughs> well, it's good to see you again, Matt. You know, again, we're here in the AES studio. So happy to be back. It's nice to do it in person. I got to see several folks within the office here today, which has been good. People are getting vaccines, so masks are coming off, and everyone's just loving life. So it's pretty good. I can't complain. And I hate to always date episodes, but <laughs> when Jose Altuve hits a walk-off Grand Slam, that's just something that's worth mentioning. Absolutely. Um, especially to any of our you know, listeners who are Rangers fans. Ah, yes. Sorry, I'm not sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. I actually watched a little... So last night was the first time I actually was able to watch more than like half of an inning of baseball on TV, you know, closing one chapter and opening another with some stuff going on at home. And so all good things. It's just been, you know, nice to have some extra time on my hands. And so a little bit of baseball was nice. And, and actually, I didn't get to see that. I certainly saw the alert on my phone, was pretty pumped about that. You know, and again... Like I said, I've been you know just tied up doing things, but how are the Astros doing? What's their record? What do they look like? Can we you know are we looking forward to playoffs or what? What's what's going on here? So they have the best offense in baseball. They are losing to. They have a very strong record against winning teams, okay. and they can't seem to beat losing teams. So it's like <laughs> the Rangers are. We're like you know that went into extras. Yeah, and it's just one of those like uh, you know so. Our bullpen is pretty horrible and needs a lot of help, but mm. I don't know what that looks like. Mm, you know, yeah. starting pitching's looking good. You know, Framber Valdez is back, and that's that's enjoyable. It's an exciting team. It's just terrifying as soon as the starting pitcher has to leave. Like, yeah. how bad is this going to get? Yeah. But that being said, it's a good time to be an Astros fan. It's always, you know, it always comes down to though, how hot are you in the fall? Yeah. And I hope they, I hope they keep it up. Is everyone still mad at the Astros for this whole, like, the cheating thing? You know, is, are people have gotten over this? Are they people mm. still upset? So I think some of the people are just never going to get over it. Okay. Which is just sort of weird because, like, I mean, you know, I'm not here. I'm one, you know, a blind Astros fan. So, like, I don't know how credible my word is. But, <laughs> you know, trying to do some research into a lot of this stuff, it's like, it's very unlikely that this started with them nor were they the only ones doing it yeah. and you're hearing a few players say more of that so it's just sort of this like disproportionate outrage right relative to the circumstances even from players where it's like almost you know it feels like it's almost like i'm glad it's you not me kind of thing. like <laughs> no no bad shame on you right so there's definitely that you know and now we're getting into like the whole stickum thing the like foreign stubs substance which it's what the same that? deal so like pitchers have been using Sticky substances to improve their grip on the ball to increase topspin. Okay. And it, I mean, that's why I think why pitchers have been so dominant lately. Mm. But like, I mean, you even go back a few years ago when the Astros traded, you know, before they got Granky at the deadline, they picked up Aaron Sanchez and Joe Biagini. And you were like, what? What's the deal? And it was like, the only thing that stood out is they had, they, both of them had like, were top 25 for spin on their fastballs. Wow. And like, Everybody was obsessed with it. Okay. Anyway, so this like stick them. There's this like spider tack, which is 
there's some like YouTube videos and like some like Dodgers guys like trying to throw a ball and it just like going in a totally different direction because it sticks so much to their hand. Holy smokes. And like Garrett Cole, who former Astro has certainly been, you know, found guilty of using this stuff. And it's always been illegal, but it's never been enforced. And so like some players, you know, it's a mix of like pine rosin, you know, which is the same thing to grip the bat yeah. and sunscreen. And that's why you like a lot of times you see ball player pitchers always touch oh. the bill of their hat as they're kind of like resurfacing, oh. if you will, or re- touching up. Yeah. Um, okay. I had no idea. And so there's a lot of stuff where it's like, this has been known. It's no secret. And MLB, no doubt they will screw this up, but they said, all right, everybody has to stop now. Yeah. Which was sort of the same thing they did with the sign stealing deal was they, they were like, you guys really need to knock it off. And I think that's sort of why the penalty was so bad for getting caught was, you know, but this they're saying now if a pitcher gets caught, it's like a 10 day suspension, Mm. which is sort of interesting because yeah, if you're like a fastball pitcher who's relying heavily on that grip, that is probably going to hurt you. Thankfully, many of our Astros pitchers throw excellent curveballs. Yeah. So it's just one of those. It's frustrating because they will screw it up, but something has to be done because it's like such a difference maker. So why don't they just let everyone do it? I mean, I think they just need to standardize what you can use. I mean, I think they're trying to, you know, make it more fair to the hitters. They're trying to improve offense. Yeah. But I I mean, that's what sells tickets. Either like full blown strikeout, like no hitters or lots of hitting. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, you're looking at an obscene number of no hitters this year. Really? Okay. I didn't know that. Like the Dodgers, like the increase in spin on their pitches went up like an obscene amount. And then MLB announced this deal (laughs) and it dropped by a bunch. Like what? There is no question that this affects performance and, you know, but you're right. Like level the playing field. I don't think you have to ban it outright, but come up with, Come up with something because some pitchers argue, look, I need it for control. You know, there's there's other there's other things going on. Yeah. (laughs) Thankfully, baseball is a sport of data and we'll we'll figure out exactly what's happening. I just don't trust Rob Manfred to do anything that is remotely the best option possible. Um, <laughs> that, that makes sense. Well, and again, I could keep asking it because I, I do enjoy the game of baseball and, and I love sports. And so for everyone that's listening, obviously Matt's dialed in. And so I encourage all of you to reach out to Matt and encourage him to start a baseball podcast because I think he would absolutely crush it. He'd probably crush a lot of people's dreams in the meantime, but I think he'd be a great host. So anyone out there, hit Matt up and say, yes, you should. And maybe one day he'll start the the Offenbacher Astros podcast. But until then, we're going to stick with drilling fluids. How about that? Let's do that. Because you're obviously really good at that too. So today's topic, temperature modeling. You know, that's a very odd sort of topic that I, maybe a lot of people probably don't know unless you've worked more on the analytics and modeling and, and well planning side. But Matt, what is temperature modeling? Why do we do it? Why is it important? And, and we'll kind of dive into the details after that. Yeah, well, and I'll say, you know, before we start recording, I was telling Justin, like, I'm trying to come up with ideas of, you know, relevant topics. And what's interesting with temperature modeling is I keep folders. I basically have a technical library of products and drilling fluid concepts. And then there's subfolders in there of anything that I consider a major topic. And I have a folder filled with papers on temperature modeling. And we hadn't mm. talked about it. So I thought, well, yeah. maybe I'm leaving something here by not bringing it up. But if you think about it, fluids were circulating, right? It's dynamic. The hole is going to be hotter. 
If I'm in deep water, I have cold temperatures. It could be cold at surface. My mud goes in cold, you know, it goes down hole and all of that affects rheology. It affects a lot of other things. And so, you know, temperature modeling is, is fairly complex when you think about the fluid interaction while I'm circulating or while I'm static, what the temperature is outside, how hot it is down hole. So that there's all these factors. And, and I mean, shoot, it's complicated. If anybody ever had to do like thermodynamics in college, which I was effective at avoiding as an electrical engineer, <laughs> but saw my friends suffer through it. Yeah. It's complicated, but it is something we do. And especially when we're trying to do more complex hydraulics modeling, we might ask a lot more questions about temperature gradients and, and other things than we might if we're just trying to do hydraulics, which even if you're, you know, a mudder in the field, it's like, all right, I'll get you the BHA. All right, I'll get you, you know, yeah. this is one more way we can annoy field personnel, but <laughs> I would like to argue we have a good reason. Right. So what are some of the critical inputs used when doing temperature modeling? So, I mean, we want surface temperature, so we want what it looks like at surface, and then obviously work your way down. And the thermal gradient, the frustrating thing about this is, most of the time you're going to get something in degrees per hundred foot and you're just going to say, all right, it's, you know, one degree per hundred foot. So just use that. But that's not necessarily true or not. It's not the most accurate. It's mm. something you can get away with. You can get away with it on land, but if you're in somewhere that's really hot, it, it could be far more abrupt. And so trying to say it's linear doesn't really work. Right. So we either want more detail where it's like every hundred or thousand feet have a temperature and then we can come up with our own curve. Sometimes we can even get, you know, tools, tool data that measures these things. And so like that, that thermal gradient, and then, you know, tie that to the fluid composition and the rheology. And I'll explain a little bit more about that. But if you think about oil-based mud or even water-based mud, you know, oil, brine and solids, and even what they're made of could affect how well they insulate or, you know, convey temperature. And then if I'm trying to do something even pretty complex, how long has the fluid been sitting still? So if it's on the bottom of the hole, obviously if it has more time to heat up, mm -hmm. it will. And then how long have I been circulating? Because now I've been able to take surface, cool it off, but I've been circulating for a certain period of time. How hot is my fluid downhole relative to my formation? So, you know, just think about it. It's complicated, right? There's a lot of, a lot of information that could affect how all that works. Right. And then you've got to think about your volumes and hole size. You know, how far away is my... You know, what about fluid that's closer to the pipe relative to the annulus? Mm. So even cross-sectional area matters to some degree, you know, and it, it depends on how much detail do you need to get into, but a lot of the software will go as deep as you want to take them. Wow. So we mentioned thermal gradient, but what are the impacts on drilling fluids from, you know, differing thermal gradients? So I think, you know, we've talked about HPHT viscometers and how the readings at zero PSI look way different than 15,000 PSI. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to model that, you know, temperature is another factor. We know that most fluids get thick when it's cold and thin when it's hot. Yeah. And some products are temperature activated. And so you'll actually see them do some other things. So, you know, viscosity is one thing, fluid expansion and compression, right? So the fluid may actually occupy less volume or more volume. And you have to balance that with the hydrostatic pressure along with right. heat. So, you know, the other thing we want to know is I've been around a number of situations where someone says, look, we want to drill with this fluid and it's a really hot downhole temperature, but we want to use cheap stuff. It's like, okay, fine. How long will that stuff last before it breaks down? 
and okay, if, if I spot it, you know, if I go to make a trip and I circulated and it was 50 degrees Fahrenheit at surface, I put it down there. How long does it take to heat up and how many hours do I have before that stuff's all burned up? You know, so those, those sort of questions, you know, how hot is it actually getting? And this, the same is true of downhole tools, right? Fluid is really, really important for cooling tools, but it can only do so much. And so, for example, when we've looked at some like geothermal applications, we've definitely seen where the tools last longer than they're rated to, mm-hmm. but eventually they'll succumb to the heat. And the question is, how can my fluid, you know, insulate or, you know, can my fluid help protect that? Right. Or how often do I need to introduce cool fluid? And that can even be elastomers. I've, I've been in, on wells where, you know, the only time the elastomers really failed was when we were static because we kept putting cool fluid down. Right. And we were right on the edge of that failure mode, you know? Yeah. So yeah. thermal gradients can do a lot of things on that front. I think one, one more thing I'll add, and we mentioned this in geothermal, is you can actually cool a wellbore. So if you really want to get fancy with it, the fluid can actually take heat away from the the near wellbore okay. for a period of time before it heats back up from the rock behind it. Wow. And so that is what, another reason that some of these tools that are, you know, high temperature rated can last longer than you would think is because it's not getting as actually as hot as they were tested to right away. Mm, okay. I didn't even realize that. That's So with that cooling the rock down, just that small area that's exposed to the wellbore, I suppose, that would be good for like tool to prevent tool issues? Basically? Yeah. So, I mean, you'll read some of these where they like, there's a well in Japan that I think they it was, you know, 750 or 800 degrees Fahrenheit. And they were like, the, the tools lasted way longer than we thought. But what we realized is that we cooled the wellbore enough that the near wellbore wasn't actually as hot as the formation. Oh, wow. And okay. so the tools eventually died, but they got way more data than they were expecting. Yeah. And what part of their strategy was to not let the well sit static for long enough. So they were constantly introducing cool water. Mm. And so just geothermal, it's it's definitely going to be a, a bigger deal if if, you know, as people step into that more complex geothermal wells, at least. Okay. No, that's great to know. So what are some of the modeling factors that we need to consider when we're doing geothermal or sorry, temperature modeling? I mean, the trick is, you know, a lot of this stuff you have to ask the customer, like what's representative, right? How long does it take to trip or how long, how long are we actually going to be static? And that's always the trap of, they ask for the worst case scenario and everything looks horrible. And you say, well, what's why don't we do worst case and what we really think is going to happen? Otherwise, all of my models show bad things happening all the time. But how deep is the well? How long are you circulating for? All of those time periods, you know, you could circulate for a while and the mud cools down a little bit and then stop. And now it's warmer than it was, but it's going to start heating up. So this this stuff can get pretty complex. And then, you know, other things we can kind of sandbag it, but like the heat capacity of the fluid components. So you know, one may actually, you know, heat capacity is basically how much energy it takes to raise something a degree Fahrenheit, right? Yeah. Say a, a gram of something. But, you know, that's going to be different for bayrite than it's going to be for base oil. Then mm. it is for water, for calcium chloride. So those things are all going to be different and how different they are matters. So most models will at least require you to provide, you know, the oil water ratio, right. brine composition, base oil type, and, you know, weight material volume or solids volume. And then, you know, kind of some of the other things that you might not think about is one is thermal conductivity, right? Like how does the fluid have any insulating properties, which 
can actually be, you know, some of that is, you know, that's by their very nature, but then even convection. So the viscosity of the fluid, if you think about it, lower in the hole, it's hotter. That fluid's going to heat up. What's it going to want to do if I'm just static? It's going to want to rise, right? Yeah. And then the cool stuff at the top is going to want to fall down and you actually can create a convection current. Oh, wow. So you have cool fluid falling down. And and so the viscosity of your fluid can actually affect that convection, right? Huh. Thicker fluid won't want to move as readily. Yeah. You know, when I was involved in insulating packer fluids, the deal was find a fluid that is minimally conductive and make it as thick as possible so it can't move. Wow. And the only thing that limited our thickness was whether we could pump it or not. Yeah. So, you know, you run that whole model and, you know, you can get as specific as you want on some of those things. And then hopefully what you have is you have you have your formation temperature gradient, which you input, and you can compare that to the temperature inside the pipe and it'll normally graph that by depth and the temperature in the annulus. And that can help, especially when you're talking about tools being, you know, thermally protected, you know, inside the pipe, they're exposed. So how cool can that fluid get yeah. versus external where there may have some extra insulation around them. And so the annulus temperature may not matter as much and it heats up faster. So there's just, you know, there's obviously a lot of things to think about, but there's also some great tools out there and you can account for a lot of things for planning a really hot well or just something where you even have a really narrow ECD and you need to know how fluid's going to behave under, you know, heating, repeated heating and cooling. Right. No, it's, I mean, again, this is totally something new to me. And while I think, you know, most people have a, I guess, fundamental understanding of, you know, as it gets deeper, it gets hotter and fluid gets hot downhole. And when you get at the flow line, it's really, really hot most of the time if you're deep enough. But there's a lot of, you know, really careful considerations that take place when, you know, for high temp wells or like deep water wells, geothermal, what are some beneficial outputs from doing this temperature modeling that you've you're experienced or that you can share? So, you know, understanding how hot a fluid gets over time. When I was involved in some drilling in Alaska, we looked at this because you're drilling through permafrost, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to melt the permafrost. So you actually need to, you know, keep the fluid cool. You know, it's going to warm up the near well bore. Yeah. I think, you know, high temperatures, being able to figure out mud coolers. And I know I was very skeptical early on, but I've been doing more research and I believe in mud coolers now. I think one of the big challenges with mud coolers is the thermal conductivity of, for example, a heavy fluid. It requires much more energy to cool it, which means you need a lot more mud coolers. So there's just, there's complexity there, but sure. how much, you know, if my flow line temperature is this and that's not safe to work around, how cool does it need to be going into the suction to keep it from coming back out at that temperature, right? So you can model that. If I need exact downhole properties, I could take my HPHT viscometer, you know, I can either take my data or do some modeling and calculate it. And I can get really, you know, precise ECDs for a narrow fracture gradient right. when there's big changes in temperature. And then, you know, another thing I would say that's that's on my list that is just another thought. This is annular expansion. So if you leave fluid behind casing, you know, you can have annular pressure build up. Sometimes the temperature, you know, that expansion of that fluid can actually create annular back pressure and you'd have to remediate it, which is expensive. But... You know, that can be super complex. So think about like the C annulus of a complex well bore. Mm. How hot is that fluid getting? And how hot is it getting relative mm. to produced fluids, for example? So I'm flowing back from a really hot well, oil's coming, that warms everything up. I shut in the well. You know, how much stress does that create? 
and you have to model between that flowing hot fluid being transferred through, you know, production tubing, packer fluid, through, you know, casing, cement, casing, drilling fluid that was left behind casing. Wow. So huh. I don't know if those are actually reliable. I just don't know <laughs> if anybody's sophisticated enough to prove that they're wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> Makes sense. But, you know, I mean, I, I think most of these, like, those are all kind of ways you can use this as a tool. But, at, you know, at lower temperatures and basic environments, we just, you know, the modeling can be pretty pretty complex and we don't benefit nearly as much. And I guess that's why it's not part of the regular discussion. But it's important to remember that if, you, if you're about to step into a complex well, you know, getting the numbers right for this modeling is is important. Right. I mean, do we do a lot of that now currently? I mean, do you and your team look into any of this or is it more, I mean, because we mentioned high temp wells and deep water, which right now, maybe we may start seeing that soon with oil prices, but it's it's a lot of time we haven't really been exploring any of these types of wells or at least, you know, here within the last year or so. I mean, a lot of it comes up around geothermal. I would, I think, you know, we have some hot wells coming up and I think if we ever had, you know, if we have tool issues or that sort of thing, I would mm. take a real close look at at these models as well. So it's it's kind of like running hydraulics when you have a problem. It's another element that can be part of the conversation. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, the scope is limited if you're drilling a unconventional well that's, you know, 200 degrees or something. We sort of know where we stand and we're not on the, you know, the extremes. But the, you know, the flip side of it is sometimes I think we drill hot wells and we forget that we could be a little more sophisticated and know more going into it if we would just take the time to, because a lot of hydraulics programs already have these models built in. Right. All you have to do is give it good information and use it. Right. The key there, good information. Yes. Garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Matt, that's a lot to chew on. And and again, I don't have much experience in this. So I'm glad you answered a lot of the questions that I had. And if, you know, anyone out there has any further questions or would like Matt to dive into anything a little deeper, please reach out to us on LinkedIn, or you can hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com. Please, if you could, I know we have way more downloads than reviews. So whoever's out there, if you're driving, I know it's tough, but if you're not, or if you're li- listening to this at your computer at lunchtime or whatever the case may be, if you could, please just leave a review or you know, even just share it with somebody on LinkedIn or if there's a topic that we haven't explored, I mean, we're over 100 episodes now, so, you know, we're getting creative on on other topics. And certainly, to, you know, as time, you know, goes on, technologies evolve, the way we drill wells evolves. And so I, there will always be something to talk about. But if there's something we haven't touched on that you'd like to know more about, please let us know. We're always willing to explore different topics and ones that we haven't explored yet. But with that said, everyone, again, appreciate the support. And everyone, now be safe. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.